In the meantime, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. We're at the end of Mark 12 and beginning of 13. How many like uh, courtroom dramas? Yeah? Right? Perry Mason. You just dated yourself. That's all right. I used to watch Perry Mason with my dad, so I just dated myself. <laughs> There's like like 15 CSI shows now, right? You know, it's like, Tachapi should be getting its own pretty soon. They're working their, their way down to the smaller cities. We all love a, a good courtroom drama. And so this morning, we have a courtroom drama unfolding before us in the pages of scriptures, uh, Jesus versus false religion. Jesus versus false religion. God adjudicates a defamation of character suit. I'm using like legal terms this, against the religious leaders. So false religion is going to be put on the stand. And Jesus will be the prosecuting attorney and the judge and the jury. One of the reasons Jesus came into the world was to reveal to us the Father and to correct false religion and misrepresentations of his character in the way to salvation and, of course, to provide that way of salvation on the cross and then to invite, uh, indeed, command all men to come to him, to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. We have seen the false religious leaders and their teaching throughout Mark's gospel. We know in the last chapter, the Sanhedrin, made up of 70 religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, sending wave after wave of prosecutors to trip up Jesus, try to humiliate him, catch him in false teaching, anything to undermine his image in front of the people. They wanted him dead because he was upsetting the apple cart, so to speak. And they couldn't just kill him because he was popular with the people. And so they devised these plans to um, undermine his credibility. Uh, it didn't work, right? Jesus was smarter, wiser, and, uh, of course... In fact, he made them look foolish. He discredited their theology. And now he's going to begin teaching in the courts, in the, the temple courts. Everyone's gathered for the Passover. You have the whole nation, Israel. What a great place to teach. He's gotten their attention by cleansing the temple, kicking out the money changers. So all that hubbub, all that business going on, he eradicated that from the temple. And now it's his time to teach. In order for us to understand false religion, we need to define religion. Definitions are difficult for us. Have you ever asked uh, a child to define a term? If you're a teacher, you understand this process. They say, oh yeah, I know that word. Okay, well, what does it mean? And they're like, well, you know, and they define the word with the word. Or they just give you examples or illustrations, which isn't really a definition it's, it's difficult to pin down the definition of words, but if we don't do that, then we might be talking about completely different things. 
So what is religion the way I'm going to use it this morning? Two things. One, a set of beliefs that describes a person's understanding about their deity and and other spiritual things. So there's a set of beliefs. Every religion has a set of beliefs. Right? Christianity has its set of beliefs. Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism. Secondly, we define religion as a set of practices that defines the way a person or, or set of people believe to be the proper worship of the divine and or the way to please their deity or achieve some kind of salvation, whatever salvation means for that group of people. So we have our set of practices. We would say that the right set of beliefs about God we call orthodoxy, and then that leads to the right set of practices, orthopraxy. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Proper belief leads to proper behavior. You've got to get the belief right and then the behavior, not vice versa. Otherwise, you lead to behaviorism and legalism. So you see this in Paul's epistles, the first half, correct doctrine, second half, correct practice. Well, how do we know if there's all these religions out there, which one has got it right? They can't all be right. I mean, that's what some religions teach. That all religions have it right. All paths lead to God. But in order for us to get it right, God has to tell us himself who he is, what he's like, and what he requires of us. Right? You can't just make this stuff up as you go along, though we like to do that. I mean, come on, we're all guilty of religion by a la carte. Take a scoop of this and a bowl of this, and I don't like that so much. But that is not the true and proper religion, true and proper belief about God, or the true and proper practice. And so God has revealed himself to us through the pages of Scripture and through the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it follows that false religion comes from an attempt to describe God apart from Scripture. All false religion stems from trying to describe God apart from his revelation and trying to describe worship apart from Scripture. Or, you have the Scriptures and you're misinterpreting the Scripture, whether through ignorance or on purpose. And we're guilty of this, all of us, at times as well. I want to believe this about God. I now believe it about God. And I will now find a verse to back up my belief about God. And we can make Scripture say just about anything we want it to say. As Ross shared with us this morning, as he uh, studied that psalm in more depth, it meant a lot more than sitting on the couch eating potato chips and taking a break. Look, we all need to take a break. The Lord says to rest, because he rested on the seventh day, right? But we don't need be still and know that I am God to tell us to, to sit on the couch. If your body's tired, rest. We're human. We're finite. We wear out. Right? Some of you probably are amening louder than others. So, yeah, so rest. And then get back up and get back to, get back to work. It is good to work. 
Usually, though, it's a combination of both for Christians. We've got the Scriptures, and we know we're supposed to listen to the Scriptures and let God define Himself to us according to the Scriptures and define our worship according to the Scriptures. And yet, we will often add something that's not in the Scriptures just based on our own thinking, or we will be tempted to interpret a part of Scripture uh, the way we want it to read. Case in point, famous case, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Oh, he's not going to tear apart my life verse, is he? That's okay, don't squirm in your... So see, wouldn't you rather know what God actually had in mind for that verse than he says, I can do anything I want, and he'll give me the strength to do it. If you read the context of that verse, Paul is saying, I have learned to live with plenty, and I've learned to live with little. And the key is, I'm paraphrasing, that to be content in whatever financial circumstances God's put you in or whatever um, he's equipped you with, whatever ministry God is calling you to do, he will equip you with what you need to accomplish his will. Therefore, I can do all things, parentheses, that God is calling me to do. Through Christ, through Christ who strengthens me. Got it? So, I hope I didn't tear apart your life verse. Actually, it's more powerful when you have the true interpretation. That's always the case with Scripture. A general rule of thumb for interpreting Scripture is that the, the interpretation that sits the least well with your humanity and flesh is probably the correct interpretation. The one that makes you go... Oh, please don't mean that. You know. But you come to know it, accept it, and love it. And that is how the process of sanctification works. So Jesus came to reveal the Father. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He came to redeem humanity, to set the record straight about how to approach God and how to be redeemed, not by works, but by grace through faith. And to point people back to true religion. Remember, he came and he said he's seeking worshipers in the uh, in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. God's character has been maligned by the very people he called to represent him as religious leaders of Israel. They had the scriptures. They knew the scriptures. They were to lead the people. The people didn't have the scriptures often. They had to trust in their religious leaders to tell them who God was, what he's like, what salvation means, and how to please God. And so what are some of the things that when Jesus comes as God in the flesh to set the record straight, what are some of the things he attacks? Let's look at some of those, those things. According to the religious leaders, God doesn't want us to help people on the Sabbath. And yet Jesus loved to heal on the Sabbath. In fact, he waited for the Sabbath often to heal. I wonder if his disciples after a while were like, oh no, he's going to do it again. You know. He healed a blind man on the Sabbath who'd been blind from birth. And instead of being excited for this man and excited about the one who healed him, the religious leaders were outraged. They told the boy who was born blind, who did this to you? Could you imagine? 
They also taught that God doesn't care about sinners, that he, he doesn't want to help them. They asked Jesus, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know, if you're this holy man, we see you do all these miracles, and you're this great teacher, but we just can't figure out why you would hang out with filthy, rotten sinners. And Jesus tells three parables, right? One of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and then the prodigal son. And he says, heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. This is what makes God happy. This is what makes for celebration in heaven. You've got it all wrong. God didn't come to tend to the 99 sheep who need no shepherd. He came to retrieve the lost. Of course, we know that there really are no 99 sheep that don't need a shepherd. We're all lost. We all need the good shepherd. Another place Jesus had to attack false religion was in the area of money. You know, money is the most often quoted topic in the entire Bible, along with the heart. And they go together, right? Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Money is a barometer of our heart and what's important to us, how we spend our money, what we spend our money on. And there's always been money. There's nothing new under the sun. People have always struggled with money. And the false teaching of the day was that the more money you had, it was evidence that God loved you, was pleased with you, and was blessing you. Which doesn't leave much hope for the poor. And the way to get on God's good side is to give a lot. To give a lot. Now, this is a great system for the religious leaders who are rich and in charge of the temple treasury. So they're teaching, the more you give the holier you are and the more God is pleased with you and your wealth is evidence of that very fact. So they're getting rich off the poor, which is proof that God's pleased with what we're teaching and the way we're living our lives. Look how rich we're getting. You need to give more. So the poor have to amp up their giving. And the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And they're hopeless and they're far from God and they're never going to get saved and the rich are convinced they're saved. Before uh, we allow our hearts to say, oh, the rich. Remember, compared to the rest of this world, everybody in this room is rich. Filthy rich. It's easy to find somebody in your neighborhood who's got a lot more than you and consider yourself poor. That's the way upward mobility works. We just keep moving to better neighborhoods, but we always like being the house that's at the bottom of that new neighborhood. So we can convince ourselves that we're not like the rich. I'm not beating you up. This is humanity. This is fallen man's nature convince ourselves that we're not like them. You know, we're, we're generous. And so we come to Mark 12, 
41 to 44, this story of the widow's mites, which aren't little bugs. She doesn't have mites. But we don't use that word anymore. It's, uh, It's a King James word. And often these stories and parables become very popular in the King James Version. And so we know the story as the widow's mites. Okay, but anyone new to Christianity here this morning is probably like, okay, it's this poor woman and she's, she's got bugs or something. Okay, mites are coins, copper coins. She has two left. That's all she has left to her name. And she gives her last two coins, the widow's mites. What a great scripture for those who want to fill their pockets or fill the offering planks. Look at this woman. What an example of giving. Oh. So we should all put everything we have into the... I should have preached this about 30 minutes ago. I'll preach after the offering on the widow's mites. This scripture has been used and abused all throughout the history of the church to fleece God's people. Does scripture teach us to give generously? Yes, and regularly, and cheerfully. We can find those passages elsewhere. It's not this passage. We don't know anything about this lady. We don't know what her heart motive was. We don't know why she was giving, although the Scripture seems to indicate that the reason was this was her last shot at salvation, because that was the religious teaching of the day. Jesus neither condemns or commends this woman. He just points it out. Look at this woman. Other places in the Bible teach us when and how and why to give our money to God. In the 1500s, around the time of Martin Luther, there was a man named Johann Tetzel who would go around to the Roman Catholic churches and sell indulgences, and this was one of his favorite texts to preach. Indulgences. Get yourself or a loved one out of purgatory faster by buying an official certificate from the church, which will take some of the merit from one of the saints or from Mary or from Christ or from your own giving and somehow get you out of purgatory faster. And you preach on the widow's mites and you say, wow, look at this woman. Now here's a woman who loved her husband. She gave it all up for her deceased husband to get him into paradise faster. What about you? How much do you love your loved one? And uh, they put out the box and people throw the coin in. He had a little saying about the sound that the coins make going into the box that I always forget, but it's kind of catchy and it rhymes. Say, well, so glad the church isn't like that anymore, right? It's the year 2000, and Jennifer and I, as brand new believers, she was raised Catholic, I'm raised in a more liberal-leaning Lutheran church. We came to Christ after marriage. She said we should go back to church if we're going to have kids, because that's where you raise children, is churches. You don't go there to worship God, or know about God, or learn about God, or you go because that's where people with children hang out. They don't hang out at bars. So that's why we went back to church, to to start our family. 
And um, God had other plans for us, praise God. So where should we go? Should we go Catholic or Lutheran? She said, well, there's more hoops to jump through if you want to be Catholic. Let's go Lutheran. (laughs) She opened the phone book and went to Lutheran churches and we found this Lutheran church that was big where we could get lost in the back. Um, But we were lost. And God found us. The preacher was preaching expositionally right through, line by line. And we were like, why hasn't anyone ever explain the Bible like this to us. It's so clear and so wonderful. And so we, we came to Saving Faith and um, the associate pastor wanted to plant a church on the other side of town and he asked if we would go with them and we said, sure, that'll be great. And uh, at one time, uh, some people from the church who were more mature believers or at least had been believers longer than us said, hey, we're going to this conference Well, what's it going to be about? There's going to be a lot of worship and Bible teaching. Great! We love Bible teaching and worship. Let's go. So we went to San Jose to the Compact Center where the Sharks play. And it was a free conference. And brace yourself. you got to keep listening because I'm going to say a name and some people are going to go, Hey, don't pick on her. you got to follow me. It was a Joyce Meyer conference. Joyce Meyer, a word faith teacher or prosperity gospel Preacher, we didn't know. We just wanted to worship the Lord and hear good teaching. And you know what? A lot of what she teaches is good teaching. There's some good stuff she's written. Yet, when it came time to pass the plates, she preached on the widow's mites. And she talked about how if by faith you give seed money to her, God will multiply it back to you. And they brought out all these testimonies of people who'd given everything to Joyce Meyer Ministries, and now they're millionaires, you know. And we were young and kind of poor and in debt. And we're like, well, this is what the religious leaders say we're supposed to do. Write the check. And I don't know how much we gave, but I'm sure Jennifer knows because she wrote the check. And probably we had no business giving that much money to someone we hardly knew. And... um, You know, the strange thing looking back is, how come these word faith preachers and televangelists never say, you can give your money to other things God is doing? Why is it always to their ministry? This woman's got millions and millions and millions of dollars. She has a $10 million private jet. She employs her entire family. They all live in mansions and drive expensive automobiles. Um... She got a $50,000 gold toilet in one of her homes. I mean, you, you can look this stuff up and you're like, hmm. But all we heard was, God will bless you if you give more money because that is evidence that you truly love God. The more money you give, the more he will give back. And they also like to use the verse, God will not be mocked. Those who sow sparingly will reap sparingly. Yet you look at that passage in context and it's in the context of investing in the Great Commission, in building churches, in spreading the gospel. You want to see souls saved? You want to see people come to know the Lord? Do you care about that harvest? Then sow generously and you will reap generously. There's nothing better, nothing more joyful and edifying than seeing somebody come to the Lord. Amen?
Oh, it's a wonderful thing. And to be part of it. That God would use you and let you see that spiritual fruit. I love to teach, disciple, counsel, train, and see people see passages with new eyes and have the spiritual eyes of their hearts opened and their love for God to abound even more. I love that. Given, given my life to it. Not out of some compulsion or duty, but I can't think of anything better to do with my time. It's wonderful. I get, I get such a thrill out of it. So, what then shall we say? You know, going back to Joyce Meyer, if you got a few Joyce Meyer books, here's, here's my personal conviction. If there's better teachers where you don't have to sort through false doctrine and sound doctrine, go with the teacher that you trust instead of sitting there having to weed out truth from error. I know in the last couple of years she submitted her whole ministry to a third-party accounting agency that keeps her accountable, but she doesn't have the royalties from her book go through that agency. So um, everything that's given to her in a ministry event goes right back out to ministry. That's okay. She doesn't need that money anymore. She's making millions off the royalties of her book. And she justified it by saying, look, this is God's will. Look at Solomon. Look at how much money he had. Look how much he was blessed. Which is strange because Solomon was uh, an idolater. (laughs) Being rich is no indication that God is pleased with you. Amen? Amen? Being poor is no indication that God is displeased with you. The amount of money you give is no indication of the genuineness of your faith. I don't know what's the motive of your heart for giving. Do you put cash in the offering plate so the person next to you can see how much you're giving? I don't know. I'm not going to judge you. I know that's between you and your Lord. And if you want to know how to give and when to give, go to the pages of Scripture. and The Holy Spirit will teach you how to give. Just... To set the record straight here, when you give to the church, the deacons collect the money that gets sorted, it's put in a safe, it's counted by uh, someone in the office staff, it's logged by our church treasurer, the elders, and the pastors never see. Because we'll minister to those without bias. Everybody is equal at the foot of the cross. Even if we knew how much you were giving, I don't know what your motivation is. And I won't judge your heart. So that's between you and your Lord. You guys seem like pretty faithful givers, though, because the work of the ministry keeps on happening around here. So praise God for his faithfulness and your faithfulness. I believe that's a reflection of God's character here in a church that honors his word. So let's get back then to our story We've got our court case here, and we're going to get the charges. Okay? What is Jesus charging the religious leaders of? Mark 12, 41, uh, excuse me, 38. And in his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes 
in like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. You're getting a picture of of these religious leaders. Sent by God to glorify and magnify God. John the Baptist said, I must decrease, Jesus must increase. And yet they seem to be all about increasing themselves. Their stature, their notoriety, who was the greatest rabbi, which rabbi do you follow, which rabbi do you... What are the charges then, in general here, number one, or A, fear of man instead of God. They cared more about what men thought of them than what God thought of them. Serious fear of man issues. Pride. Remember the story Jesus told about the banquet? And he said, better to sit at the end of the table at the lowliest seat and have the host call you forward than to sit in the best seat and be told, what are you doing up here? So be humble. They wanted these, these titles. I was researching this some more, and, and some of these titles were, were like this long, and it was, O oh, Great Magnanimous Teacher of God's Truth. And that's the kind of greeting they wanted in the public places. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a place for preparation and education, And yet when you get a a new book on theology about God and after the guy's name are like 15 titles, you begin to wonder, why do we need to know that? I like to read the references or the recommendations on the back of the book. That tells me what I want to know. People I trust, trust this guy. If if they recommend him, then I'll read him. But I'm always going to read with discernment with the scripture open while I'm reading the book. By the way, for the record, Brent would suffice if I'm good with Brent, but if you want to call me Pastor Brent, that would be appropriate because you're respecting the office of pastoral leadership. You're respecting God through that that title, but I certainly won't be tweaked if you forget to call me Pastor. Brent Brent's fine. Uh, children should address adults as Mr., Mrs., or, or Pastor. Just because children ought to respect their elders. And so we do have titles, but the Pharisees wanted these titles that drew too much attention to themselves. What's up with these robes, these long robes? Uh, A robe in those days was a rectangular piece of cloth with a hole cut out for the head. You put it over, that's going to leave four corners. On each corner, you were supposed to put a blue tassel. We read that in the Shema, the Jewish prayer a couple weeks ago, the third part of the Shema. There's a requirement that God's people wear those tassels on the corner of their robes to remind them of God's commandments. And you could like braid the tassel in, in, in different ways to kind of help you remember elements of God's law. Um, the Pharisees and, and other rich religious leaders Big tassels. Impressive tassels. 
because God's word is really important to us. And it's so important that we're going to weave threads of gold into the tassels. Because if a religious leader was worth his salt, then certainly God would be blessing him financially. So the richer the person was, the better the teacher, and the more you should listen to them. Now, if this works in other professions, and, and, you know, do you really want to go to a doctor who's dirt poor? Or a realtor who's dirt poor? It's like, do they sell any houses? You know? And so, in those professions, it's common to, to, to maybe drive a nicer automobile or dress in a, a certain way. It builds confidence. But for a pastor, you know, you go too far with that. I'd be a little nervous about putting money in the plate if, uh, if I was wearing an Armani suit and a different one every Sunday. And yet this is what the religious leaders would do and how they'd wear their clothes and parade themselves around. So the best teachers really had it going on. They were, they were styling. They wanted to sit in the chief seats in the synagogue in the places of honor at the banquets. And the way banquets worked back then was your dining room was open to the public. People could see who you were having over to dinner and you'd recline around the table and see who was sitting at the chief seat and who the guest of honor was. And you would often, outsiders could come and gather outside the courtyard of a rich person's house and listen to the dining conversation and the great um, you know, conversation and the politics and the religion. And, you know, it's kind of like having a tabloid but live. Not much new under the sun, huh? Yeah, people are people. So, the worst, though, out of all these charges is the devouring widows' houses. The devouring widows' houses. God takes care of the widow and the orphan and wants his people to take care of the widow and the orphan. What's this devouring? How does this work? Let me describe this to you. The scribe is a lawyer. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Now, we need lawyers to protect us and our wealth from people who would want to fleece us. You know, you've got to fill out your, what are these things called? We just did one. Your last will and testament or your trust. That's the one, the living trust. Otherwise, they end up taking 40% of your inheritance after you die just to sort out all the paperwork. I don't know why it takes 40%. But it's worth it to hire a lawyer, a scrupulous attorney, to help you. These scribes were not scrupulous. They would charge exorbitant fees to protect a grieving widow who just lost her husband. You couldn't work, or there were very few opportunities to work as a woman in this culture, so to protect that money so she could live off of it. Her children would have money to live off of. And what the scribes would often do is say, oh, I know you're grieving right now. Let's not deal with the paperwork and let's not deal with the fees. Let's just get you situated. Can you hear this? And they're, they're logging their fees 
all along. Okay? Now it's time for the widow to pay up, and it's like, wow, would you look at that? We're going to have to liquidate some of your assets to pay those fees. Or if they really played their cards right and the widow was, was very elderly, they could wait until she dies and then take that paperwork to court to another scribe and say, wow, she really owed me a lot. I'll just take her house, devour widow's houses, leaving nothing for her children. And all of this done under the guise of religion, as if God was pleased with this. And, you know, the people must have hated this. It just must have made them sick to their stomach. But they're like, but they're the religious leaders. They know. They have the scriptures. How would you want to worship a God who commends this system? And yet, it was all people knew. So when we get to the widow's mites, we see that the point wasn't that this woman gave everything she had and what a great example for us. Really, look, if you all gave everything you had, what would happen? You'd all be destitute. We'd all be out of money on welfare and expecting other people to take care of us. So that can't be the principle here is to give everything and then you die. You know, Hey, he died penniless. Good for him. He fulfilled God's requirements. No, what, what is Jesus doing here? This is evidence of the charges he brought against the scribes in the same context there. People's Exhibit A. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the multitude were putting money into the treasury. By the way, the treasury boxes were located in the court of women. So you've got the temple, the temple complex. The court of women were for women, children, and slaves. And then inside was the court where the men could go and you know, only the men. But out where in the court of women, they had these large treasury boxes with these big flutes coming out of them, like funnels. And all the money was coinage, right? Not paper, it was coinage. And so you could hear people putting their money in the box. And the larger the coin, the more it was worth, and the louder the cha-ching. And so it was very public what people were giving to God. And it just set up a whole system that was ripe for showing off. Because if the wealthier you were, the more God loved you, God really loves me. You know, I wonder if they even cashed in their larger coins for lots of smaller ones so they could sit here. Probably, yeah. You're so cynical. No, no, you know human, you know, you know mankind. I know my own heart. If not for the grace of God, wouldn't that be all of us? I mean, like really, not once in your life when the offering plate was going by, you, you were hoping the person next to you saw how generous you were, and you go, what is that? Where did that come from? Really, that's in my heart? Praise God for Jesus Christ. Remember once, I don't know if I've told this story from this pulpit before, but in a Home Depot back in Oak Grove, and the line was backing up because there was a guy who needed to break a 20, and they didn't have enough change. And, you know, they're calling whatever the code is, 
got code 23 at register 5. I need a manager. And uh, we're, the line's getting longer and longer. And you're like, oh, goodness. And uh, finally, the manager comes and, you know, counts out all the change. And they get it all together. And they give the guy his, his change. And he opens his wallet to put it in there. And his brother goes, you had change all along. And he's like, well, I only had ones. And tomorrow's Easter Sunday. He wanted to put a five in the offering plate, but he didn't want to put a 20. And his brother just ripped him in front of the whole line in Home Depot. He goes, you are so cheap. You go to church twice a year and you can't put a 20 in the offering plate. And you wasted all these people's time the day before. You oh, it was like one of those you want to get away <laughs> moments. He's like, why don't you just put a one in the offering plate? And he's like, I wanted to put a five, but not a 20. It's just human nature. So Jesus is watching this whole show that goes on all the time, and it's disgusting to God. These people coming in their expensive clothes and standing in front of the box and praying these loud, long prayers to God and then dropping their money in for show. Sad. Very sad. Disturbing. And most disturbing, a poor, destitute, grieving widow comes and puts in her last two copper coins. And calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Again, the point isn't Give all you've got. You know, you hear the saying, give and give again till it hurts. Well, that's probably good counsel. If your tithe and your giving really doesn't affect your lifestyle at all, you probably need to give more. Right? You know, there should be a sacrifice. But for some, it doesn't take much till it hurts. Right? When you don't got much... So, here's what Jesus is saying. People's Exhibit A. If Israel's religious leaders are correct in that salvation and blessing come to those who give the most money, then what are we to make of this widow who proportionately gave more than everyone else, yet is completely destitute and now has nothing left with which to live? Got it? Your whole religious system's corrupt because she gave the most and she's getting nothing. Where's her long robe? Where's her blessing? And you know, the scribe had just asked Jesus what is the greatest commandment. And he said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Who's loving this neighbor? You really think God is pleased with this, this is what Jesus is saying. He is disgusted. He is God. He is mad. It makes me angry. Doesn't it make you angry? Who's helping this widow? What sick religious system would require a widow to empty her pockets to gain the blessing of God? Is this really indicative of God's character? Is this the God we serve? 
Why didn't anybody see this? Time out. Everybody's okay with this? Well, she must be a sinner. Sinners are poor. She's got it coming. Maybe God will have mercy on her last two coins she put in. Maybe she put it in with a pure heart. So sad. So sad. Let's call it a character witness to the stand. Let's call a character witness to the stand. What is God really like when it comes to widows? Deuteronomy 10, 17. I don't care which one of those religious leaders we're talking about, even if it was the Sadducees who say only the first five books of the Bible is the Word of God. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord, Yahweh, your God, is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. God loves, cares for, and has compassion on the orphan and the widow and the displaced alien for whatever reason, had to flee his country due to famine or political strife or war. So what's the verdict? Verse 1, chapter 13. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. You know the temple was gold-plated? Could you imagine? I'm like reading about this, and they said when the sun came up, the, the reflection off the temple was blinding. You could see it four miles no smog. Every day is a clear day, except during a sandstorm. But I digress. They said even during the sunset, it, it would glow, but now, you know, have a kind of a different color about it. Just amazing. One of the wonders of the world, right? And when Solomon finished the temple, people came from miles around. Kings and queens came to see this glorious temple. In fact, people came to know the true and living God through coming to see the temple and then hearing of the true and living God. That was God's design, that the religious system he set up would draw men to the true and living God. And the people of God in their holiness and compassion and love would draw people out of the false religions to the true and living, loving, compassionate Holy God. And so Jesus, in essence, is saying the whole thing's coming down. The whole false religious system is coming down. I don't care how much time and money was invested in building this thing, it is going down. The whole system's going down. The leaders are going down. And I will build my church on a firm foundation. 
And there's been glorious church buildings through history and humble buildings. doesn't matter. What's being taught on the inside, that's what matters. We're all temples of the Holy Spirit. Some glorious, some not so glorious by the world's standards. doesn't matter what's going on on the inside. That matters. doesn't mean come to church without showering and cleaning yourself up a little, right? But it does mean what do you believe on the inside? That is what matters to God. And the whole thing did come down. About 40 years later, 70 A.D., the entire temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was sacked. Millions were killed. They set fire to the temple, melted off all the gold, collected it, and then dismantled the temple, the courtyards, stone by stone by stone. God's judgment is Absolute, it's final and terrible. And the temple has not been rebuilt since. Though I keep hearing plans are in the works. Because according to prophecy, Jesus will return. The temple needs to be rebuilt. So, what is God's true character then? How do you please Him? How do you get to heaven? Let God speak for Himself. By grace you have been saved through faith that not of yourselves is the gift of God, the free gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're saying don't give. No, we're saying give, but not to impress God, not to impress others. And certainly not to buy your salvation. It's not for sale. Jesus purchased us out of the slave market of sin by his own blood. Give to the things God wants you to give to. The Great Commission, evangelism, to the needy, the poor. Give to the functioning of the church. Give to prepare people for leadership for the pastorate. Give to our youth going on mission trips this summer. Plenty to give to, but certainly don't give seed money thinking that God's going to bless you back abundantly. Tell you how he'll bless you with more wealth. Spend it on eternal things and he'll entrust you with more. That's a general principle, not a guarantee. How many times have you found yourself saying, you know, God, if you'll just you know, help me win the lottery, I'll give it all to the church. And keep a little for myself, of course. But I want to do great, amazing things for God. I want to be that anonymous donor who writes that huge check. Look, you can do great and amazing things for God right now that don't require any money. Go share the gospel with somebody. Live obediently. Love as Christ loved us. God's true character, John 3.16. Say it with me. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Don't see anything in there about having to give your money. 
Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He doesn't require widows to die to prove their love to God. Psalm 103.11, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness to those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. God's own word is His character reference. And if anyone who says they know God and are speaking for Him aren't teaching from here and teaching rightly, don't listen. Isaiah 54.10, For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Our God's a compassionate God. So sad. They were so near to God and so far away. He was there in the flesh and they missed Him. And they couldn't see this false religious system for what it was. How sad that God's character and His name got drugged through the mud like that. That God wouldn't want you to help people on the Sabbath. That God would require the poor to die destitute and penniless in order to earn His favor. And He said, that's it. The whole thing's coming down. And Jesus said, you will tear down this temple and in three days I will build it back up. One of the greatest themes that runs through the whole Bible is beware of false religion. Brothers and sisters, beware of false religion. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Unless it's God died for you and it's not going to cost you a penny to be in heaven with Him forever. That sounds too good to be true, but it is. Praise God for that. So, my prayer for you as you come, sit under God's Word and study under His Word, that you would not be so close to God and yet so far away because you're replacing Scripture with your own ideas or misinterpreting Scripture with your own Ideas. If you're confused about any portion of Scripture, come to your pastors and ask. We'll sit down together and search the Scriptures out. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, great, merciful Father, You are the perfect one. We could never put You on trial. Lord, we understand we've been put placed in your scales and have come up wanting. Your word tells us we're like a vapor. We're, we're less than nothing. You say when you put us in your scales, weigh us according to our glory and our achievements, we come up as less than nothing compared to the riches of Christ, the glories of Christ, the perfection of Christ. May we not settle for anything less. Forgive us and save us and protect us from false religion. 
and from false views of you, O God. Build us up on foundation of Christ so we can be assured of our salvation. Grow us into the image of Christ. Bring us into glory in heaven through the sacrifice of Christ. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.